We want to welcome everyone this morning as we gather to praise and worship for those who have gathered in person, for those who are tuning in line. We, we want to welcome you. And uh, let me just say, I'm glad to be here in person this week. I said, I, I think it was my brother I was talking to. I said, you know, I felt like a big church pastor last week because Network was my satellite campus, right? <laughs> so I said, I felt like a big church pastor. I've got, I'm on the big screen for the satellite campus. And, uh, but, uh, you know, let me tell you, it's really weird preaching to nobody, you know? Well, I, okay, I got to be careful with that, right? Preaching to one, it's because you know most of the time when I'm preaching to one, I get told to stop preaching. <laughs> Although last Sunday that didn't happen, I guess so. We're all right. So uh, we 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 do want to welcome you. It's it's good to be back. Uh, we did start a new study this morning with the Faith to Life, uh, and I just uh, want to assure everyone we'll take our time uh, making sure people have understanding with that. Uh, I don't know if, if some of you knew, I, I told Rick, I said, I'm kind of blind to things sometimes if it doesn't pertain to me, but uh, we did set up a whiteboard over here to make it easy to see who signed up for that particular day. You can sign up for that particular day. Uh, there's also a white sheet of paper right next to it if you want to sign up for a week that's upcoming, so you could do in advance or for that particular day, so we want to draw your attention to that. Also, uh, worship team practice is going to be Monday night this week, uh, so we wanted to uh, make sure the worship team knows that. Uh, we have the Faith to Life studies. Now, there's a, there's a correction in the bulletin because I got the bulletins done, and then we had our leadership meeting afterwards. And at the leadership meeting, uh, we talked about having a chili cook-off. Uh, Uh, so, so for Rick, it's a cook-off if you're not into competition, right? Uh, so, so the Friday night game night is not going to be 6.30. We're going to start at 6, and we're going to have a chili cook-off to start off the game night. This Friday? This Friday, yep. So we thought we'll, we'll, we'll tag it on to something that's already going on. We had the game night planned, so, so we'll do the chili cook-off uh, or t sample tasting. You know, on Friday at 6, and then we'll follow up with games for those interested. If you're just interested in chili, come eat and leave. If you're interested in, in uh, uh, games as well, stick around for a little bit. Uh, we'll just have a fun little uh, fellowship evening. So, uh, save, save you some chili. Uh, I do think, uh, I think on the communication card, there's probably a place for game night. Uh, but if you have interest, it might be helpful to know for uh, how big batches people make of chili and stuff. So uh, you can mark that on it or just send me an email or, or whatever as well. Oh, yeah, if you want, or if you want to bring a side or a topping, you know, not everybody has to bring chili by any means because I'm, I'm betting that whatever Amanda makes will be more than Amanda and I eat, right? So, you know. uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It would be a lot better than if I made it. So, uh, so we hope you could come and join for that. Just have a, a fun, fun evening. So with that, let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll go to the Lord and worship. Uh, loving Father, we just give you uh, thanks and praise for this morning and the opportunity that we have to, to come together to worship, to praise, to, to seek you, uh, to, to also seek to grow in our, our life of faith and, and just our discipleship. And so we just ask that you would... Meet with us in this place. We pray that you would anoint uh, this time of worship, that we would 
be able to give honor to your name and feel your presence. Uh, Father, we pray that, uh, that we can be comforted where we need to be comforted and, and where we can be challenged where we need to be challenged, just that we might continue growing in our life of faith and in our following of you. And so we give this time into your hands, and we invite you to, to have your way as we come to you, as we minister to you through worship, and as we just seek your presence through your spirit, through Jesus who's taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right. We are reading from Psalm 111 this morning. Praise the Lord. I will thank the Lord with all my heart as I meet with his godly people. How amazing are the deeds of the Lord. All who delight in him should ponder them. Everything he does reveals his glory and majesty. His righteousness never fails. We start off this morning with crown him with many crowns. Usually sung at Easter, but why not now? So would you please stand and we will sing together.
<clears throat> he causes us to remember his wonderful works, how gracious and merciful is our Lord. He gives food to those who fear him. He always remembers his covenant. He has shown his great power to his people by giving them the lands of other nations. We continue on with Shout to the Lord.
just and good, and all his commandments are trustworthy. They are forever true, to be obeyed faithfully and with integrity. He has paid a full ransom for his people. He has guaranteed his covenant with them forever. What a holy, awe-inspiring name he has. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom. All who obey his commandments will grow in wisdom. Praise him forever. He is a worthy foundation. Every breath. 
This morning we will be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 20 through verse 30. I'm reading from the ESV. When then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethesda. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. May the Lord bless the reading and Pastor Dan's message. As we, as we were singing, I was thinking, I'm thankful to be back with you again today as opposed to last week, and, and I was surmising that you're probably thankful that I'm back with you and not singing on mic, <laughs> as opposed to last week when the mic was right in between Amanda and myself, and I was probably way too loud. <laughs> But that's another story for another day. You know, uh, uh, years ago, uh, Amanda had a Ford Escort. And one day, the inevitable occurred. The check engine light came on. Now, let me just say, it wasn't as bad as this last time. The engine wasn't smoking, okay? But the check engine light came on. And, and I promise this year's not going to be a, a one-car illustration after one-car illustration as we go throughout the year. Uh, but it just seemed to fit for this week's sermon. And, and evidently, I've been having cars on the mind lately. <laughs> so... So we take the car to, to, to the garage to check it out, and, uh, and the mechanic hooks it up to the computer, and, and uh, he looks at me, and I think it was the mass ox oxygen exchange sensor or something to that effect, and he looks at me and he says, is it affecting the way it drives? And I said, no, not really. And he said, don't worry about it then, because it's too expensive to fix if it's not affecting how it drives. Now, we should have known at that particular point in time that we were driving on borrowed miles, right? Because on the one hand, while we're relieved that we don't have an expensive car repair to do, on the other hand, we realize that if the warning light is always on, 
and we ignore it, how do we know if a real problem occurs or if the problem gets worse, right? So we should have known we're driving on borrowed time. I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think we got grace period of about two years maybe, maybe about two years grace period, right, with that warning light hanging on in the balance, and we're, uh, the day of reckoning comes, right? And the car, uh, this, was, this was the woe to me day, right? Because we're driving down the road and the car starts doing this. <laughs> And I looked over at Amanda and I said, I think it's starting to affect the way it drives. <laughs> now, now, we could have cried out, this is unfair. We could have said, this is unjust. We could have said, this isn't right. We could have said, we don't deserve this. But the truth is, the warning light had given us a couple of years to address the problem. That was a period of grace. We had a couple of years to address the problem before it was too late, and we had simply ignored it. So who did we have to blame? Nobody but ourselves. Now, it's interesting that when that check engine light comes on, the first time, right, is glaring in your face. You, you can't miss it, right? It's just glaring at you. But after you ignore it for a little while, it kind of moves into the background, and you hardly notice it at all. You almost forget it's there. What's that? There you go. <laughs> that is until it's too late to do anything about it, right? And as you think about this, isn't this how people are so often when we talk about the judgment of God, right? We kind of have the warning light. We have indicators. We have things saying, hey, there's a problem. We have deep in our conscience, we have this awareness, something's not right. We've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. But the more we ignore it, the more comfortable we become with it, and the more we just get to the point where we just don't deal with it at all. That is until the point comes where it becomes too late to do anything about it. Now, I, I know that as we look at our text today, that as we come down to the end of it, the come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, is far more inviting and more appealing than the woe to me that the text starts with. But what I want you to kind of see today and kind of grasp in your mind is the woe to you is the warning light reminding us of why we need to come to me, right? Because he's given us warning. He's taught us about God. He's shown us all these things so that we can have this little thing says, hey, there's a problem that needs to be fixed and you have time to deal with it, but deal with it before it's too late. Now, thankfully, uh, we each have this grace period, right? The Bible reminds us that there's going to be this day of reckoning. So I reckon we better not skip the woe to me and route to the come to me. So we're going to start with the woe to me, right? Now, as we continue in our chronological life of Christ series, uh, we've already been seeing how Jesus is extending grace and compassion and mercy. Uh, today, we're confronted with words of judgment, and we may not like it, right? But the reality is, is before we can fix a problem, we need to know there's a problem that needs fixing. And so Jesus kind of sounds the alarm, and he declares, hey, there's a problem under the hood. Now, forgive me for this, but I thought, you know, in that day and age, it's going to be a problem under the tailpipe, okay? So verses 20 and 21. I shouldn't have said that, should I? That's the problem with live TV. You can't take it back afterwards. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So you might kind of think of Jesus' mighty works kind of like the warning light. Hey, something's going on here. You need to pay attention. Seeing what I'm doing, perhaps you should start listening to what I'm saying. Because the works of Jesus confirmed the message of Jesus. And we kind of talked about that last week with John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, are you the one? And Jesus said, hey, go and tell John what you see and hear. The lame are walking, the deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing, the dead are being raised, right? Jesus doesn't just say yes or no. He says, you know what? Anybody can make a claim. Here's the evidence. The mighty works gave confirmation of who Jesus was. Now, the reality then, as it is now, is everybody is quick in line for a miracle, right? Everybody's quick in line for, hey, I want God to do this for me. I want this blessing. I... But we don't so quickly run to the front of the line when it comes to life change. I want to honor you. I want to worship you. I want to be in prayer. I want to support your minute, right? We're quick in line for the miracle, not so much for the hey, maybe I need to get my life in order and be the man or the woman that God has called me to be. So when we think about Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they've become a bit comfortable with their sin. They've become complacent with their religious practices. They're not repenting and their heart's not in it, right? So you can go through all the motions of religion and not have your heart in it. Just because you come to church doesn't mean you're worshiping God. Just because you're reading your Bible doesn't mean you're listening for his voice. Just because you're praying doesn't mean you're necessarily seeking his will above your own, right? You can, you can practice religion and not have your heart in it. So the warning itself is really an act of grace. Now, would you rather learn that there's a problem under the hood before it becomes a real problem or after you're broke down on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere? The warning is an act of grace, isn't it? It's giving you the opportunity to deal with it before it's too late to deal with it. So in John 1, we learn that Jesus came full of grace and truth, right? This is John's nice little intro. He says, Jesus came full of grace and truth, and the truth is we are under judgment apart from grace. We are under judgment apart from grace. This is why we need Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, right? This is why we need Jesus. Now, last week we saw how Jesus illustrated this generation rejecting him through a children's game. That's back in verses 16 through 19. Uh, here Jesus says uh, it's time for some adulting to occur, right? That's how you know I'm up with the times and all the new lingo, right? <laughs> Although that might be the lingo of, of last week because everything changes so fast. It's time for some adulting to occur. This is real life, there's real responsibilities, and there's real consequences. Because what Jesus is saying is you can't ignore the problem and expect the problem to go away. Now, best you can do, you can push it down the road. You could get some borrowed miles. In this case, we should say borrowed time. But verse 22, he says, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. You know, Jesus is certainly a messenger of, of truth and grace and love and compassion, and we see over and over he feels compassion, but let's not pretend that Jesus never spoke of judgment because Jesus also spoke of a day of judgment that's coming. And, and some people might think when you read this language, you're like, well, I thought Jesus was full of grace. He is. 
full of grace and truth. And if it were not for the reality of judgment, we would have no need for grace. So he says, woe to you. This is an act of grace to speak the truth that needs to be spoken. Hey, there's a problem. And this problem is you're estranged from God. You're a sinner. You're an enemy from God. You've, you've fallen short of the glory of God. I'm here to do something about it. But we've got to take it to the mechanic, right? We've got to take it to him. Now, if you're heading in the wrong direction and you ignore all the indications that you're heading in the wrong direction, then whose fault is it if you end up in the wrong place? The people of Israel, they were very familiar with oracles of woe. If you don't believe me, go and read some of your Old Testament, right? Check out Isaiah. Check out some of the prophets. Uh, they were very familiar with the oracles of woe. In fact, uh, it was frequently given to their enemies, right? Enemies including Tyre and Sidon, places like Sodom, right? Now, Tyre and Sodom were noted for both their arrogance and their rejection of God. Now, what's interesting and what we find in our text today is it's not being targeted towards the enemies of Israel. It's being targeted towards cities in Israel. So he says, woe to you, Chrysan, woe to you, Bethsaida, right? Now, these would be suburbs of Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum, you might recall, is where Jesus has set up home base for his ministries, right? So this is a place where Jesus has been present, his miracles are being done, and they're not necessarily paying attention. So Mark Moore gives this summary, and I quote, he says, Here Jesus healed the nobleman's son, the paralytic, a demoniac in the synagogue, Peter's mother-in-law, the centurion's servant, Jairus' daughter, the woman with the flow of blood, two blind men, a dumb de demoniac, uh, demoniac, and scads of others. Now, chronologically, since we're kind of walking through everything chronologically here, not all of these have taken place quite at this point. But John also tells us that Jesus, not all of Jesus' miracles are recorded for us. So in John 21, 25, he says, Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. The point is, at this point in time, Jesus has done a lot of miraculous things here. Some of those miraculous things have been recorded for us. And some of them were quite miraculous, Right? But not all of them have been recorded for us. He says, if all these mighty works have been done, but they haven't recognized what they point to. So the miracles that Jesus performed, the miracles weren't just for entertainment. They weren't just acts of compassion. Now, they were acts of compassion, but they weren't merely acts of compassion. The term John prefers for miracles was signs because they were to indicate and they were point to who Jesus was and what he had come to do. So you might say the mighty works, with the mighty works, the light came on. They did not repent. They ignored the message of the light. So they're seeing all these mighty works that confirm Jesus who is who he says he is, but yet they're not turning to him in repentance. So we can ignore Jesus' preaching, but Jesus says, woe to those who do. Now, if it's true, as the Bible says, that there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, 5. And as Jesus said, there's no way to the Father but through him in John 14, 6. Then think about it. The most gracious and loving thing Jesus can do is tell us. And we pointed this out last week, right? If there were any other way to get to God apart from Jesus Christ, there would have been no need for Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross. 
He came and died on the cross because there was no other way. Now, if you understand what is taking place in this text, then you realize that it's actually far more important that you hear the message of Jesus, that you hear the truth of God, and that you respond to the truth of God than it is than you experience a miracle by his hand. Because what good is it to be physically healed today if tomorrow I'm facing judgment? Far more important to respond to the, the, the truth of God. Uh, so they're rejecting the message of Jesus. They're rejecting the message of John. He's saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And so Jesus cries out. He says, woe to you. Now, it's not enough to know that there's a problem. You have to identify what the problem is. And so in this case, what we see, the problem is the lack of repentance. Uh, now, we normally think of repentance as turning from a specific sin and turning to God, right? So if I'm, if I'm heading in this direction, I've turned and I've gone the other direction. And, and generally, we think of individual sins, but you can think of it generally speaking as well. If, if my life is heading in a different direction, my life is now turning towards God, right? So think of it more in a general sense here. He's saying you're not responding to the message. You're not turning back to God. So verses 22 through 24. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment than for, for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, uh, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So clearly the mighty works of Jesus were not an end in themselves. They were designed to confirm God's messenger so that they would hear his message, that they would receive him and that they would turn back to God. Now, interestingly, Jesus says, if these mighty works were done in Tyre and Sidon, which were the epitome of arrogance and rejection of God, if they were done in Sodom, which was the epitome of wickedness, they would have remained. The implication would be that if these people that were hostile to God, arrogant toward God, rejected God, the epitome of wickedness, he says, if I came into their midst and I did the same thing in their midst that I've done in your midst, they would have recognized the miracles and they would have repented. Think about Jonah and Nineveh. He said, if they had been given the same opportunity, they would have repented and they would have turned back to me. Have you noticed that sometimes the toughest people to reach are those who are close enough to think that they're in, those who have experienced blessings, perhaps even witnessed miracles, but for whatever reason, they've never fully responded and surrendered themselves to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Sometimes those people are far more uh, difficult to reach than the people who recognize that their life's not in order. Now, most of us have heard the question asked, uh, maybe you've even asked it yourself, what about those who have never heard? What about those who have never heard? Well, the first thing I want to say about that is that's no excuse for you who have. Right? And if you're listening to my voice, then you've heard the gospel at some point in time. Right? So that's not an excuse for those of you who have. But the second point is, notice what he says. It will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon. It will be more tolerable for Sodom, who despite their arrogance, despite their rejection, despite their wickedness, never heard then it will be for you who have. So not only is judgment proportional to the degree of revelation that we've been given, he also knows how you would have responded if you were given the chance. 
Now think about that. He says, if they had seen what you've seen, they would have responded. So judgment is proportional. It'll be more bearable, more tolerable, but it also takes into account how you would have responded if you had the chance. Isn't that interesting? So the day of judgment will take into account the opportunities we either did or didn't have. Now, this may not resolve all of our questions about those who've never heard, right? But it does remind us that God will be just and God will be right and his, just, judgments, his judgments will be just and fair or just and right, okay? Now, the problem is, is for those of us who have been given revelation, we can begin to take it for granted. You know, when sometimes that light pops up, it might get our attention at first, but we, if we ignore it long enough, we just begin to take things for granted and we become complacent and we choose to ignore the light because we've become comfortable with our sin. And what Jesus is saying here is just because they were part of Israel, simply because they claimed to be part of God's people, didn't mean that they were. It doesn't mean that everybody today who claims to be is. Because people can be outwardly religious and at the same time inwardly distant from God. So imagine if you were in Chorazin or Bethsaida or Capernaum, how you might have responded to Jesus. Woe to you. It'll be more bearable for all these enemies of God's people. Now imagine how you might have responded to Jesus. But we're God's people. Think of how you might have responded. But we're not like them. And Jesus said, you're right, you're not like them. If they had seen what you've seen, they would have repented. If they had seen what you'd seen, they would have turned to God. If they had seen what you'd seen, they would recognize that I am who I am. You're right when you say you're not like them. Now, he goes on, and he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Now, we could speculate on the source of their pride, right, whether it's circumcision or being a Jew or followers of Moses, children of Abraham, uh, keeping the Sabbath or at least their version of, of what that meant, uh, making their sacrifices. But one of the things we see as we look throughout the New Testament and the, and the scriptures is we have our religion and our, our rituals, but Jesus says, you know, religion and rituals, they're no replacement for repentance. If your heart is not right with God, it doesn't matter how much you read your Bible. If your heart's not right with God, it doesn't matter how often you attend church. If your heart's not right with God, if you haven't come to him through Christ, it doesn't matter anything else that you do because we can't earn our way to heaven. We can only come through the Savior. Here that's reflected as repentance, and that repentance is reflected as, have we responded to Jesus? Have you received the message that he's bearing? So verse 23 once again says, uh, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, they would have thought they were heaven-bound, but Jesus says, not so fast, right? Now, scholars point out this actually uh, verse alludes to ver uh, Isaiah 14, 15, which pertains to the arrogant, self-exalting Babylon, another big enemy, right, being brought down to Sheol. Now it's being used in reference to Jewish cities who would have thought that they were part of God's people simply by heritage, simply because they grew up in the right place among the right people, saying the right things. Now think about that in today's context. People who may be born in a Christian home, raised in a Christian home, heard all the things but never gave their life to Christ. You know, pride can blind us to the problem of sin and, and religion can actually become a cloak that, that kind of hides what's in the depths of our hearts. 
because it's hard to accept a Savior if we don't recognize our need to be saved. Now, if you turn to the parallel account in Luke chapter 10, uh, Luke places these woes in the context of the sending and return of the 72. And the basic idea is, if you reject Jesus, you, re uh, you reject those Jesus sends out, you've rejected Jesus. In the same way Jesus says, if you reject me, then you reject God who sent me. Uh, right? The truth being, we're under judgment apart from God's grace, apart from what he's offering us in Christ. Now, only when the problem is rightly identified can we apply the right solution. Right? Uh, you know, let me tell you, uh, the, pro the fact that we had a problem with the mass ex oxygen exchange sensor or whatever it was in the car, you know, it didn't matter how many times they put gas in the tank, it didn't fix the problem. Didn't matter how many times they changed the oil, it didn't fix the problem. Didn't matter how many times we got the wheels aligned, it didn't fix the problem. Because you have to apply the right solution to the right problem. Now, Jesus tells us that that solution is come to me. All who are weary, all who are heavy laden, because there's no other way to come except for through the one who is full of grace and truth. Now, when Jesus came full of grace and truth, the truth is we're under judgment apart from grace. Come to me is more appealing than woe to you, but woe to you is the warning light reminding us that we need to, to come to me. So notice, I want you to notice how quickly Jesus shifts in the text from woe to you, Chrysan, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, uh, Capernaum, how quickly he turns from that to come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So while they're under judgment, he extends this invitation to grace. Now notice he's not inviting them to law. He's not inviting them to a system of works. He's inviting them to himself. He says, come to me and learn from me. But before we get to that beautiful passage that we all love with the come to me, notice the track we, we take to get there. We've just heard the woes. Uh, we have this opposition and rejection that's coming, and then he thanks God for sovereignty. So in the, in the aspect, people are rejecting him, and he says, thank you, God, that you're sovereign, verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So God is sovereign to conceal or reveal uh, God doesn't owe us anything, including revelation, revelation itself being a gift of his grace. So Craig Bloomberg writes, and I quote, The language of these verses, hidden, revealed, your good pleasure, is incontrovertibly predestinarian in nature. Don't you just love these big fancy words? <laughs> right? But the language of free will appears equally as clearly in verses 20 through 24, in which people are judged for their rejection of Jesus, and in verses 28 and 29, in which Jesus offers salvation to those who will respond more positively. Scripture, in fact, regularly and without a sense of contradiction, juxtaposes the themes of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And then he gives a, a few verses to validate his claim. Right? So we, we see these ideas of a picture of God's sovereignty, but we also see this picture of human decision. He reveals to whom he reveals, but come to me all who are weary. Now, I have a responsibility to get through this text. So it's been predestined that I not resolve this tension for you today, but freely choose to move on in the message of the text, okay? See how that predestination and free will works together hand in hand. Actually, I've spent a whole sermon on that uh, back in our apologetics because it really is a sermon in itself, that tension that you see. So verses, verse 27 
Jesus goes on, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So all things pertains to revelation, teaching, as well as authority, right? Jesus says, to whom the Son chooses to reveal. So we see this aspect of, of teaching, truth, as well as authority. But notice what he says in between. Nobody knows the Son except the Father. Now, you might be scratching your head and thinking, well, what do you mean nobody knows the Son except for the Father? At this point in time, do the disciples fully understand who Jesus is? They're getting glimpses. They're getting pictures. They've responded positively to Jesus, but they don't fully understand who he is as the Word made flesh, as God in their midst. In fact, uh, we're going to find as we move through the Gospels, the disciples are going to be asking, who is this that the wind obeys him? Who is this that the waves obey him, right? They, they, they are responding positively to Jesus, but they don't fully understand who he is as the Word made flesh at this point. Nobody knows the Son except for the Father. The Father truly knows the Son. But the corollary to that is it's only the Son who also fully knows the Father because he's related to the Father in an exclusive way. As I was thinking about this a little bit, I thought uh, we'll, we'll put it in, in these terms. You know, uh, wisdom and understanding, we'll say science, can teach you about biology. Or at least it used to be able to before this day and age when science has been perverted. And I'm being serious. Science has been perverted with some of the things being done and claimed in the name of science, right? But generally speaking, you know, most of us had biology class, and we understand there are certain things about biology. Biology can teach you about the human body, right? can teach you about male. It can teach you about female. can teach you about all these different things about the body, how the body's supposed to work, you know, until you get older, right? But... <laughs> Tells, tells you all these things about how the body is supposed to work. Can science tell you who Dan Jasmine is, though? Can tell you how my body works or how it's supposed to work. Can tell you about all these systems in this body, but it can't tell you who Dan is. The only way for you to know who Dan is is for Dan to reveal himself to you, for me to let you know who I am. That's what Jesus is saying in this text. You know, there's certain things you just can't learn unless it's revealed to you. And Jesus says, there's only one who has the intimacy with the Father to be able to reveal him to you, who's close enough, who actually knows who he is. There's only one way to know the Father, and that's through the Son. So Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they failed to see what these mighty works were declaring of Jesus, that he was the one to reveal the Father to them. It says, no one knows except the Son. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I, I'm sorry, I missed a word there in my notes. Right? No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So who might that be? Right. So verse 28 continues. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden. All who labor and are heavy laden. Now, so Jesus moves from thanksgiving for the sovereignty of God to an appeal for human decision. Isn't that interesting? This is the tension we see in Scripture, the sovereignty of God and the choice to, to choose, right? A human decision. Jesus follows, Woe to you for not repenting with, Come to me and I will give you rest. Woe to you is kind of the warning light saying, Hey, you're heading for trouble. 
come to me the opportunity given and grace to turn around. Now, are those who labor and are heavy laden those who are under the burden of religious rules and regulations? Are they the ones who are under a heavy load of sin and guilt? Are they those who are filled with uncertainty? Are they those who are trying to devise their own way to God, whatever that may look like, who are trying to earn their own way to God or make their own way to God? Yes. Can you imagine any greater burden than the burden of trying to get to heaven on your own? Of never knowing how good is good enough? Never knowing when you've done enough? Now, if you think about it, you can take any, you don't even have to limit it to Christians, right? You can say any religious system or, or even an atheist for that matter. Is there any single individual in this world who has actually lived up to their own moral standards all the time? Not really. So how can we ever pretend and expect to meet God's standards on our own? It says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. There is no greater burden than the burden of trying to secure your own salvation, right? Because everybody falls short. So Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this passage actually echoes uh, Jeremiah 31, where God says he will give rest to his people, right? Because we see... Between the Old Testament and New Testament, language that was applied to God in the Old is being applied to Jesus in the New, where God will give rest to his people, how? Through a new covenant. And Jesus is saying, come to me, all who are ready to look to God for help. Jesus is going to be the one who bears for us the new covenant and brings us into the new covenant. Uh, and So the rest promised in Scripture is a rest that will only be found in Jesus Christ. Now, the irony is, isn't it interesting? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And then what does he follow that up with? Take my yoke upon you. Isn't that interesting? Follow me, and I will give you rest. Now, notice also that the rest is for your souls. So it's not saying, hey, I'm going to exempt you from doing anything in life, right? But, but you can have peace. You can have security. You can have comfort. You can have assurance. And I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. Now, for the Jew, the yoke was metaphorically used to symbolize the law and discipleship. And it was a picture of taking upon oneself a teaching of a rabbi. Uh, and uh, Maurer, as quoted by Moore, uh, writes that the yoke of Jesus is understood in Matthew not as fidelity to the law, but fidelity to a person. Being yoked to Jesus, right? Being yoked to his teaching, being yoked to his person, coming in union with him, uh, being loyal to him as the person who is God's representative among men. Now, now think of a, a part of the purpose of a yoke, right? You're connecting one oxen to another oxen to make more efficient work to, for each to ease the burden of the other. Now, in this case, it's kind of like we're being united with Jesus so that he can bear our burdens, our sins, so that he can help carry us, right? If you're not yoked to Jesus that he might carry the burden of your judgment, then guess what? Judgment will be yours alone to bear. And you'll have nobody to blame but yourself. But if you're yoked to Jesus, what you find is a compassionate Savior. Not one who demands less, right? 
fact, if you think about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, he says it's not enough not to murder. Don't look at a woman with lust. It's not enough not to hate, right? We have to love and pray for those who persecute us, right? It's not that he puts less upon us, but what does Jesus do? He carries you where you fall short. He picks you up where you fall down. And his grace, he empowers you to learn from him and live for him. He gives you strength that you didn't have before, right? Because you're united to him and you're learning from him. So he says the yoke is light because he's bearing most of the load, right? He's laying down his life for the forgiveness of your sins. But not only is he laying down his life for the forgiveness of your sins, he's also promising you the gift of the Holy Spirit to help you now do what you could not do before because you're in union with him. Isn't that a beautiful thing? He says, you can hear the words, woe to you, right? If you're standing apart from God because you're not in union with me, or you can respond to the call to come to me and receive the grace and all that that offers and the help that he gives you, not only in life, but to bring you into the next. I, for one, am going to answer the call, come to me, right? And as, a, as we think about this month, one of the things we're doing as a church is we're giving you the opportunity to sign uh, a covenant of membership, that's one way of saying, you know, I too want to follow him. I want to take his yoke upon me. may not be right for everyone, right, uh, in terms of the covenant uh, of membership, uh, but that invitation is to come to him that he might give you rest. Will we do so? Amen. In the bulletins, you have a communication card, and we invite you to think about how God might be speaking uh, to your heart this morning and to offer that up as, as part of your, your worship toward him. As we uh, prepare ourselves for communion and for stewardship, uh, this was an illustration that I found online. You know, if you wonder where some of the illustrations come from in life, <clears throat> I pay for a subscription to an illustration site. Actually, it's got more than that, but sometimes you need a little help finding an illustration, okay? Sometimes, you know, your car doesn't break down every week to give you an illustration. Sometimes you need a little help. <laughs> so so this, was, this was found on uh, MSN, uh, evidently. Uh, it says, Mensa is an organization whose members have an IQ of 140 or higher. And a few years ago, there was a Mensa convention in San Francisco, and several members lunched at a local cafe. And while they're dining at this cafe, they discovered that their salt shaker contained pepper, and their pepper shaker was full of salt. How could they swap the contents of the bottles without spilling and using the implements at hand? And so clearly this was a job for Mensa, right? <laughs> IQ 140. And so the group debated and they presented their ideas and finally they came up with this brilliant solution and it involved a napkin and a straw and an empty saucer and they called the waitress over to dazzle her with their solution. Ma'am, they said, we couldn't help but notice that the pepper shaker contained salt and the salt shaker... And the waitress interrupted. Oh, sorry about that. And she unscrewed the caps of both bottles and she switched them. <laughs> Isn't it funny how sometimes the simple truth can be right before our eyes and we don't see it? We make it more complicated than it really is. Why is it that Jesus is the only way? You know, every other religion involves somehow that we're reaching up to God. Christianity is the only religion that teaches how God came to us. Jesus is the only way because if there were any other way, he would not have needed to come. Your life was full of sin. 
his life full of righteousness. And so Jesus came and he said, let's switch the caps. And I'll take your sin upon myself so that you can have my righteousness. So he says, come to me and take my yoke upon you, right, so that I can give rest for your souls. You're no longer trying to earn your own way because I've already earned it for you. But likewise, will you learn and follow, from, follow me from this point forward? So as we come to the Lord's table, I remind you that on the night in which Jesus was killed, was crucified, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. O gracious and loving Father, as we come to this table, it's true that sometimes we make things a lot more complicated than they need to be. And we just ask that as we come to this table that we would recognize the simplicity of the gospel, that, that we couldn't earn our way to you. And so you came in the flesh to get us to you through Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. We, just, we pray that we would recognize the gift that we've received in grace and that we would respond to that grace appropriately as we now take upon the yoke of Christ and learn from him so that we might come and that we might follow in all our ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The truth is, is we are, we are under judgment apart from grace. But the beautiful thing is, is Jesus came to offer us grace. Will we come to him and receive what he has to offer? We invite you to come. Would wait.
I think this applies, so we'll see how, how I do with this little comparison illustration. I joined a new team back in August, and what we do is we facilitate workshops at State Farm. And I went to workshops before as part of my other job, put on by this group and they were always done so seamlessly they did such a wonderful job and when I joined the team I got to peek into the back end of that which was all of the structure that they have behind that it's not just the person presenting but it's all the rest of the team who are supporting them the person who's in charge of all the zoom stuff that's going on putting people into breakout groups the person who's in charge of coming up with the content that they're using for the workshop, the person who's in charge of making sure that the OneNote table that we follow for our schedule is filled out the way that it's supposed to be and everybody knows what their part is. And one of our teammates calls that the sausage making. That's, you know, whenever we have someone who joins in a little early and we're talking about who's doing what, we're like, well, you just got to peek into how the sausage is made because that's that's the nuts and bolts of us being able to put on a workshop like that. And I was thinking about as we come to Jesus and as we live our life, sometimes the people that we meet who are believers, we see the, the surface and we don't often get to see how the sausage is made. <laughs> that time that they spend with Jesus, that time that they spend in the word, that time that they spend really praying and wrestling with the spirit on the things that hold them back, the things that are a struggle for them. And that's really where the sausage gets made, <laughs> right? So as we come to Jesus, we present ourselves to him and we offer ourselves and we say, help us make the sausage better, <laughs> right? So would you stand as we end today with speak, O Lord, because we want him so much to speak into our lives.
I always have uh, something written down that I could throw out for the closing, but you know, it's 50-50 whether I use it or not. And uh, after an illustration like that, I mean, how can I use anything that I prepared in advance? You know, isn't it interesting? Jesus says, come to me all here weary and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's how the sausage is made. <laughs> Go forth to learn from him so that you can become more like him and that you could be God's imagers throughout the earth. Amen.